So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, I am finally back from vacation, reconnecting <laughs> with my good friend, David. Uh, I feel like I just abandoned you, the Samson Society, the entire <laughs> world, disappeared into the mountains of North Carolina with my family for two weeks. Uh, and and you, uh, you, you recorded a conversation, uh, what we'll play later in the show with our guest while I, while I was gone. Thank you for handling that. I wish I... It's a guy I know because I have spoken with Brendan, but I, I right. wish I'd been there for that conversation. Oh no, it was it was great, and uh, you know, we of course has always missed you, but um, you know, you didn't abandon anybody, Nate. I think you, I think you are demonstrating that you know you've got to get away and take care of yourself where you can and when you can, because um, you know we've got to do the things that we can do safely right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. not to yeah. beat beat the old COVID drum, but. Um, you know, it's just important right now more than ever to do good self-care. And I can't think of much uh, better care than that beautiful cabin I saw pictures of. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, you know we, we, we searched for a place that would be safe and secluded. And it right. certainly was safe and it certainly was secluded. And getting there turned out to be a bit of an adventure. Oh, just man. because the access roads are so... I mean, these, 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 you know, mountain, you know, winding hairpin turn blind corner, yeah. uh, and, you know, for the last half mile gravel, you know, a little more than a, than a, than a, than a, you know, a forestry track through the, through the mountains mm, yeah. to, to get to this place. Right. Uh, the, the nice thing was once we got there, Allie was, you know, she was so stressed by the trip by, you know, by negotiating those mountain roads she she's fine if she's behind the wheel but these days she can't drive she's got to trust me to drive when you're asking a yeah. great deal of her to ask you know trust me to drive <laughs> and what when we finally arrived at the cabin she said i'm staying here you know so <laughs> we she she uh you know she stayed there for a for, uh, we didn't we didn't go off gallivanting into town uh you know we didn't yeah uh, we we stayed at the cabin. Uh, the cabin really is uh, a misnomer. The place was freaking huge. Did you see I mean, the picture? Yeah, yeah, I did actually, and it was so funny to me because I went cabin. <laughs> 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 That's bigger than you know uh, quite a few of our friends' homes. So oh, you know. man. Yeah, somebody built this, you know, essentially this timber vacation villa up there in the uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So, you know, six bedrooms and, uh, um, you know, 
in addition to the big open great room with the kitchen and the dining areas and the seating areas and the vast uh, deck looking out over the, the sloping backyard under the trees with the stream running through it and the tire swing and the fire pit and all that kind of stuff in the basement of this place. Oh, man was a game room no, not with more than just the obligatory billiard table, which you get in almost every rental cabin, you know, in the Smokies. Right. Okay. This was a full-size, I mean, beautiful billiard table. But in addition to that, a working Wurlitzer jukebox. <laughs> uh, oh, man. A, a video arcade. Oh, wow. And separate from that, a home theater, theater seating, <laughs> massive. Uh, it was like, uh, and so it was a dream uh, and plenty of toys this and and plenty of books oh man so these folks kind enough to leave you know their grandkids toys around so my kids my grandkids had plenty to play with and, oh that's so good yeah and I, 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 I supplemented by bringing I, I brought a dozen nerf guns and 500 rounds of ammunition <laughs> so we had nerf battles all over the place yeah it was fun Wow, that is so good. That is really so good. Because, yeah, any, you know, when you first told me you were going to a cabin and you were going to have your family up in, you know, phases and things like that, I kind of thought, well, you know, bless their hearts. They're going to, you know, fire (laughs) up the wood stove and uh, try to stay out of each other's way. And (laughs) not at all. Not at all. It was unbelievable. Uh, Wow. So I'm I'm so grateful that we were able to do that. Yeah. Uh, well, do you feel rejuvenated and I do. restored? I do. I really do. Yeah. I think I, I did need to 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 disconnect and and prepare for what's going to be a a busy fall. Right. Um. Uh, despite COVID, although I got to tell you, I this COVID thing. You and I are recording this conversation on the eighth of October, twenty twenty. Right. Uh, and let me see within the, I, I, by the way, I was blessedly gone. I was out of circulation for the presidential debate. Oh Lord help you. Yeah. Good for okay. you. I was gone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> didn't see it. Didn't watch it. Uh, did get the news, uh, that the, you know, the president had been diagnosed and the virus was migrating through the West wing, yeah. all of which now that I'm back in Franklin, uh, it, it, it seems to me as though that's kind of woken a lot of people up to the fact that we're by no means out of the woods on this deal, that, right. they, that the risks are real, that the dangers are not to be ignored. Yeah. Well, you know, that that's, it brings me to a thought. Um, I was talking to a therapist this week um, that is in our group and, um, well, our friend KK, who's been a guest here many times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and KK was telling me about um, something that she had read by another therapist that said there is really something kind of uh, that they're referring to as kind of the six month wall. Um and and people what they're what they're basing that on in a short nutshell is people have the capacity to um, handle um, adversity and uh, behavioral changes and upheaval disruption all of that for right. about six months 
And uh-huh. then at the end of that six month time, that if they don't see something that they feel like is hopeful or progressing or whatever, they're going to go back to old behaviors and say, screw it. I don't know if I can do this or I don't know if it's really matters if I do this. I'm yeah. probably just as safe if I don't do this as if I do this. Um, or they get um, they get really hopeless and they just kind of go withdraw further and they just kind of shut down. And, yeah. and she thinks that a lot of what we're seeing is um, the result of the six month wall. We just don't have the bandwidth, um, oh, yeah. you know, to go beyond that if we're not being offered things that look promising, hopeful, um, helpful, you know, and I, I agree. I think a lot of people have, um, had kind of a, um, a a rethinking about how seriously they may have, uh, decided to take this over time now that, you know, we can see what really, you know, can happen to anyone. So, yeah. 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 Well, and I do think that, um, this whole COVID deal is, in effect, just a slow-moving trauma. Mm-hmm. I think it's a national trauma. I think mm-hmm. it is a cultural trauma. I think for almost for practically everybody, it is a personal trauma. We're going to be seeing the effects of it, not just for months after this is over. I don't think we're going to snap back to normal. Right. Uh, it, it, there's going to be, I think, some... Uh, you know, this is going to have consequences and more than economic consequences. I think it's going to have personal and emotional consequences already. You know, we do see that, you know, suicides are up. Mm-hmm. Uh, addiction rates apparently mm-hmm. are up. ODs yeah. are up. Yeah. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, what turns out to be the most effective way for us therapeutically to deal with the trauma of this experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think it is even going to involve grieving, you know, Um, losses of our old, um, what would be maybe perceived as our old life, our old way of being and doing things. And um, while I'm certainly not trying to be the, the doomsday guy, I, you know, I think we will be able to eventually go back to things and, uh, things we enjoyed, but it's going to be different. It's not going to be with all the, um, free and easy, uh, ideas and ways we approached it in the past. Um, so I think it's going to, I think that, I think that does bear some, you know, some, some reflect reflection and some grief for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you touched on the subjects of grief and trauma in the conversation Mm -hmm. you had with this week's guest. Uh, I think it's uh, enlightening, uh, inspiring, and will give us some hope. So listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with today's guest on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And our guest today is Brendan McDonough. And Brendan is coming to us from Prescott, Arizona. And um, he is the founder of Hold Fast Recovery. And Brendan has a pretty amazing story of his own recovery and also of um, just some uh, 
unfortunate circumstances that brought him kind of into the public eye for a bit. There is a book that um, is out that Brendan is um, the subject of called Granite Mountain and a movie uh, with Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges uh, called Only the Brave. And this um, is based on some firefighters uh, that uh, I'm going to let Brendan share that story eventually. But Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, David. I really appreciate it. We will uh, we'll spare the listeners the arduous uh, ways that we've had to go about trying to get this thing recorded. So apparently there's something that is really supposed to come great from this because we've had about four tries at uh, getting technology to cooperate with us uh, to get you on here. So I really appreciate your patience and uh, your uh, tenacity to keep keep trying this with us. So yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm excited. So, yeah, thanks so much. Well, Brendan, you grew up in California, and you have a recovery story that started long before the, uh, the, the, uh, the other things that you've written about and shared with the world. Tell us a little bit about your own beginnings into the, into the world of um, uh, somewhere along the line it becoming um, uncomfortable to be you. Yeah, and so I was, like you said, born and kind of halfway raised in Southern California and, you know, um, single mom, so just spent a lot of time bouncing around. Like We moved a lot and people were like, oh, military family? I'm like, no, just poor and broke. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd, you know, live with my mom for six months, go live with my grandparents, mom, and I did that for gosh, the first probably 13 years of my life. And at the age of, of 12 is when I started drinking and using pot to kind of numb out um, who I was and who I didn't know who I was and the things around me. Yeah. And so, you know, I started using it at a pretty young age. It was kind of minimal that, you know, a few times here and there, but um, it really kicked off at, you know, uh, the age of 14. It was, wow. you know, every week, um, every day, every other day. And so, yeah, it just progressed throughout high school and, you know, party drugs came in and, um, you know, I didn't find a way to fit in academically. I wasn't some amazing athlete, but, you know, I always knew how to party and find drugs. And so that's kind of the way I fit in with everybody, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when did you know that it was going beyond just casual use and um, that this was beginning to be something that you felt like you had to engage in? You know, I, when I started college, I somehow graduated high school, but when I started college, I had a thought about it. And it honestly wasn't until I was arrested and it was for um, theft charges, wasn't drug related. But I didn't receive any charges within drugs, and it was shocking to me. And I, I knew at that point in time, if I wanted to turn my life around, and mm -hmm. I had a dream and was going to school to become a firefighter, that I needed to quit. That's when I really realized, you know, how much um, looking backwards, I know more than I did then. Mm -hmm. But I really took an understanding of what uh, the grasp had on me and I wanted to quit and I couldn't. And so that's kind of when I 
realized like, hey, this is something that's really got a grasp on my life. Because growing up, I was thinking, oh, I'm just young. This is what college kids do or high school kids. And then right. when I started seeing friends succeed in college and I'm sitting here getting arrested, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't it. So it was after that kind of getting arrested moment and just really realizing that this drug had a grasp on my life. And I had a kid on the way and mm-hmm. I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And um, it went on for a few months after that. Yeah. And so how did you approach sobriety that first time? So the first time approaching sobriety, I didn't, I didn't know anything about recovery. I had just uh, fallen my way into an EMT class and overheard some guys talking about a hiring on a hotshot crew. And so I showed up the next morning to, you know, turn in my application and it was a small town. So they kind of laughed at the fact that I was there but um, through a series of an interview and some HR stuff, you know, as a felon, um, I was hired on a fire department. So my first round of, of getting sober, and I'm using quotations, no one's going to see this video. <laughs> the air quotes, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, was uh, just kind of white knuckle. I had, my daughter was born March 2nd. I was hired, you know, around April and I was about to graduate this EMT class and I knew I needed to quit. So I had used probably a few days before I got hired. Wow. And um, so I detoxed becoming physically fit on a hotshot crew, which, you know, consists of 10 K runs and numerous mile hikes with 45 pound plus pounds on your back. And so that was kind of my, moment of clarity that I didn't want to use drugs, but I didn't understand like what it went, what it meant to be, you know, in a meeting or working the steps or anything like that. I just was done living that lifestyle Mm -hmm. and, you know, stayed away from drugs for two and a half years Mm -hmm. um, for quite a while. I did drink, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it was a problem or not, not really, not really up to me to decide, but uh, later on in my life, it definitely became a problem. And so there's no question about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you must've really wanted the firefighter gig for that to be the incentive that you had to really bust yourself like that. I think even more so than that, I just wanted to be a father. I wanted to be the dad mm. I didn't have. And that yeah. was, um, that was a driving factor. You know, when I yeah. remember the first run, all I could think of was my daughter, who's, you know, a month old, and I'm sitting there going, like, how many more chances do you need? You know, I was looking at eight plus years in prison, and I got out because, A, I didn't do a bunch of the crimes they were charging me with, but B, the judge said, you saw something in me, you know. As wow. a young kid, I would, you know, go party Friday night, and I'd be up at 7 a.m. community service, you know, mm-hmm. on the weekends and stuff. I was a weird, weird, interesting kid. I Polar opposites in my life of, like, you know, partying, drugs, alcohol, and then the flip side of, you know, volunteering and working with, you know, special needs community and and, and things Mm -hmm. like that, that just really um, captured my heart. So when I got hired in the fire department, it was that driving factor of just wanting to be a father. It was so important. Yeah. Wow. Well, so um, this group of firefighters that you ended up uh, working with, uh, they were called the Hot Shots. Um, yeah. Tell, yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. And so I got hired on with the Grand Mountain Hotshots and located out of Prescott, Arizona, 
and they've been around for quite a while. And they, you know, we, we fought fire, gosh, all over the country. And so um, my first fire, my first big fire that I was on for two weeks was on the Arizona-Mexico border in the Chiricahua mountain range. And the fire was anywhere from, you know, zero feet elevation all the way up to like seven, 8,000 feet of elevation. And so it was just vast and huge. And it was a mind blowing experience. Like I'd never been in a helicopter before. Oh man. The first day when we get there, we sleep, we wake up and the first, that first day um, we're hopping in a helicopter and we're getting flown to the top of this mountain to fight this fire. And it was just, it was just mind blowing. It was such a wild experience for me. Um, and it was exactly what I needed because I was still on probation. And I'm, oh, wow. you know, now I'm, you know, a month sober at this time. And it's like, I needed to be removed from the world because the mm-hmm. world wasn't doing me any good. And I wasn't doing myself any good being around it. And so to be completely removed out in the middle of nowhere, you know, with a, a very um, simplistic task at hand, you know, save lives, mm-hmm. protect property and preserve the forest and, um, these men that were around me, I, I believed in them and I trusted them. And all I had to do was just keep digging and keep my head down and, and pay attention and mm-hmm. show up every morning. And those were some of the toughest, toughest nights. Um, I was not physically in shape for that whatsoever. You mm. know, uh, had been spending the last few years drinking and drugging, but just mentally, I just was not going to quit. And I, there was no ounce of me that wanted to quit. And after I kind of started to gain some respect after the first few fires, because some guys knew who I was in the community and, and things like that. And I did have a record that so was, you know, known throughout. Mm-hmm. And I started to get in better shape physically because people were like, man, this kid is in horrible shape. What's going on? Like, is this the, all he's got? Is this the best? But I was at my worst. <laughs> and, you know, uh, but I didn't quit and I didn't stop and I didn't give up. And it was so important to me at that time. You know, um, it was, you know, the difference of being gone in jail. I wasn't present for my daughter and I was gone fighting these fires, but I, at least I was supporting her and doing something productive. Yeah. And so I fought fire for that season. Uh, you know, we, we punched in from, you know, May to September, about a thousand overtime hours plus, you know, 20 something different fires all over the country from Arizona, New Mexico to, to Minnesota, Idaho, Montana, I never traveled as a kid. It was just a mind blowing experience. And then I had, you know, 19, 20 other guys who supported me mm. and were like, I was a young father at the time too. I'm 19. Mm-hmm. I was a baby. Yeah. I couldn't even grow facial hair. <laughs> I'm so young. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Um, wow. I, it, it was a complete shock to me of, of what it was to, to live in that lifestyle. But these men were not only helping me become a better firefighter, but a better father and member of my community and you know it it was just uh I was so fortunate to have that much support and you know throughout those years we fought a lot of fire and I I grew a lot of knowledge and grew up quite a bit and went back to school and you know stayed away from drugs and like I said I was drinking and um so I wouldn't call it sobriety right Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. people kind of go back and forth It, it was what it was yeah uh and, you know, I was living the best life at that time for mm-hmm. me. I was participating in my daughter's life and, right. you know, giving back and, and being productive. And it just, it was such a radical shift. It was overnight, really. 
Mm. You know, you, if, if you think about it, uh, finally got off probation. I remember my probation officer when I told him I got hired and he's like, all right, well, if you're traveling for fires, we need two weeks notice for you to leave the state. And I'm like, sir, I have two hours. Mm-hmm. Like I have to be ready to go in two hours to leave. Like, are you going to make me quit this job? Mm-hmm. Like, this is the best thing I have going for me right now. You've seen the applications I put in. I can't even get hired at a freaking Burger King. What do you want me to do? Yeah. You know, cause they don't trust me as the cash register. I, yeah. And he was like, all right, I'll just, we'll make something work, you know, and uh, uh-huh. it became a really good relationship. So it was just a, just a powerful moment in my life of, you know, from that 19 to 21 age. Yeah. Um, it's so pivotal. Something yeah. I didn't have previously, you know, mentors and people like that in my life. And yeah. So these guys, these guys became not just friends, but mentors, people that you, um, leaned on emotionally and personally and admired and um, all of that as, as time went on with, with your experience with them. Oh yeah. They were heroes of my eyes, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. They really were. Some of them, a lot of them were fathers. And they were so inspiring to me and some had prior military service. And, you know, one of, one of the crew members, Chris McKenzie, he was, you know, it was like my best friend and we ended up moving in together we did not get along at first either and almost uh, came down to a fist fight within the first few weeks of, oh man. of uh, meeting each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're both strong headed. And, uh, and, you know, I came to the conclusion that he wanted the best for me. And so we ended up moving in and, you know, we did everything. Uh, at the time um, that he moved in, I was co-parenting. And so, you know, I'd be, we would live in an apartment and my daughter would be with us and I'd be uh running downstairs to grab the laundry and he'd be in there cleaning and watching my daughter. And so there were some super special bonds. Wow. And, you know, I remember one weekend my, my daughter was sick and I, I didn't want to call her mom, you know, we mm-hmm. were at, we're at each other's throats. And uh, so I called one of my crew members and his wife was a nurse and I'm like, dude, I don't know what to give her. Do I take her to the hospital? What do I do? And, you know, so he called me up and walked me through it and his wife walked me through it and took care of me and, Make sure I gave her the right doses of medicine. So it was like, it wasn't just a a career. It was, it was a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And um, a family, it sounds like it was, you know, we spent a lot of time together outside of um, fighting fire and a lot of our days off, we'd all go down to like hotels and resorts, get our families together. Kids would swim and Mm. just hang out. And so it was, uh, it was so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, take me up to the day that all that changed. Yeah. So I'm two and a half years into fighting fire and I'm starting to look at a full-time position or going to structure and we get called to a fire um, probably about an hour from Prescott and we fight, you know, fire all over. So even Mm -hmm. in our backyard and uh, we get moving on this fire and, we start getting information about it and it's relatively smaller and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, there's not much fire activity in the last few days and there's not much moving in. So we'll probably be out of there in the next, you know, three, four days and we'll be back home. Mm-hmm. And we get to this fire and we get a, we get a briefing and, um, you know, we're the first hot shot crew on, on the fire. And so they want us to establish an anchor point which is, you know, basics of firefighting. You've got to start somewhere. So you start at where it began 
And then you kind mm-hmm. of just work your way on both flanks mm. to, um, you know, continue to progress along the fire's edge, mm-hmm. whether directly on the fire's edge or indirectly with back burns. But I'm not yeah. here to explain wild end firefighting. I can go <laughs> on for days, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so as the morning progressed, we hiked in and it got hotter and hotter and we get to the top and, you know, there's some things we got to put in place, not we, but the overhead, my superintendent and my captain and, you know, they need a lookout. And so uh, I just happened to be there tying my boot and they say, Hey, Donut, that was my nickname. You want to be the lookout today? I say, yeah, of course I'd love to. I'd done it previously and been trained to do it in, in previous seasons and, you know, it's a part of a task book that you have to get signed off to, you know, kind of move up the ladder mm-hmm. per se. And so, you know, I talked to them about the objectives that they wanted and kind of what they needed. And on on my way, I went and uh, it had worked out that a, another superintendent was up there talking with my superintendent. And so they connected and he gave me a ride in their UTV and he dropped me off at my spot. He said, hey, if you need anything, we're, we're working in this area just give us a call on the radio. And I said, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And we had worked with the crew previously years before. And so as the day progressed, the fire's picking up and it's, you know, we're on the south end of the fire and it's pushing north. So we're in a good safe spot and good fire behavior. And um, about probably mid to late afternoon, this fire really starts kicking up and they've got some homes on the other side of the mountain that are that are being threatened and so they've got a little chaos going over there and we're way mm-hmm. on the other side so there's not much we can do mm-hmm. um and so we're kind of hearing this and watching it and as we're you know hearing it watching it we hear over the radio there's a weather event coming in and it's going to essentially you know turn this fire around and it's going to bring you know gusts and winds of 50 to 60 miles an hour oh man which is crazy yeah uh i haven't you know, seen a fire completely turn around before, um, like, like this fire did. And so as it, it didn't turn around immediately though, it started, it kind of moved like a clock, right. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it was headed towards one o'clock and two o'clock and three o'clock. And as it did it, it just made the fire bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And so finally, once it's kind of lined up, um, uh, to the northeast more so there's two weather events coming in and it turns this fire around and it started slow um we didn't see the heavy winds at first and i called back to my superintendent and i let the crew know what i'm seeing i'm like hey this fire's starting to turn around and um you know i think it's time for me probably to get out of here and right around that time that wind started pushing in and they're like, yeah, why don't you, why don't you get out of there and, you know, get to the road and cause they can see where I'm at and they're up top and they can see mm-hmm. the whole fire mm-hmm. at a different angle than I can. And so they're kind of guiding me through that. Um, as I'm on my way out, I'm seeing this fire and it's picking up and it's headed towards me and us. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, I probably should call on the radio and I hit the road and I go to look up and hit the radio and I'm like, there's no way. Like, this road's about to be cut off. And here comes flying down that superintendent in this, that UTV. And he's like, jump in. And so I throw my pack in. He's like, hey, we got to move your vehicles. And 
you know, let your soup know. And I said, Hey, here's my radio. You've got, you know, 15 years experience. I've got two and a half. Mm. So he tells him, Hey, I've got donut with me and we're going to grab your buggies, get them in town. And we'll see you guys soon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so this fire's really turning around and it's ripping. And so my crew, they're still, still up on the mountain and, you know, this fire, it, it's just pushing hard. And we're, this hotshot crew I'm now with is getting called to the north end of town to try and protect homes. And so we drive up to the north end and within two minutes of getting out of the vehicle, this fire had already just come raging through there. And we had to pull out and now we're starting to lose homes. Oh man. Um, so we're starting to lose homes and my crew's still on the mountain. And this, this all happened within a short amount of time. This isn't, you know, a half a day. This is within an hour, you know, within 15 minutes, this happens. Wow. So we lost, uh, you know, everyone's being evacuated. It's, it's complete chaos. Right. And I haven't seen fire like this before. And uh, my crew is going down their escape route and they're trying to get back into town to help. And they're cut off by the fire. And I hear over the radio that they're deploying their fire shelters. And I, and I remember just sinking into myself and thinking like, God, how could this happen? Mm. And, um, you know, they have fire shelters and we've trained for this, Mm -hmm. but it's not a situation you want to be in. Right. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to gain medical supplies. Now we're getting ready for, you know, a, a huge burnover, and the homes are still burning and we're, you know, evacuating people. And so it's just a lot going on. Yeah. And they're, they got some planes up and they're trying to find the crew and I'm trying to guide them into where they're at, but we can't get cars or trucks back in there because the roads are burning, the community's burning. And so it was just, um, you know, one attempt after another to get to them, but with no success. And there was no radio communication. The radios went silent. And um, they finally have a helicopter with a paramedic in that, that found them. And uh, they get on the ground and over the radio, you hear 19 confirmed. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I told you there was 19 guys. I told you what tools they had. And then it just hit me that I had just lost 19 of my brothers. Oh, and, man. Um, it broke me. Uh, oh, I just started absolutely. crying uncontrollably. And, you know, the amount of survivor's guilt that I felt in that moment. Yeah. Like, they say the weight of the world's on your shoulders, right? Like, I've, mm. I've never felt pressure on my chest like that before where I couldn't breathe. Yeah. And, and that would go on for years. Yeah. For years, I would attend funerals, memorials, um, dove heavy into alcohol, dabbled with some prescription pain pills. I had a shoulder injury, back injury, so when the bottle came, I didn't refuse it. Sure. Um, you know, PTSD, depression, suicidal thoughts, had, had many moments of um, putting a gun to my head. You know, mm, mm-hmm. subconsciously hoping, hey, if I take a few extra pills and if I go out and have a have a good night of drinking, maybe I won't wake up. Yeah. And um, 
yeah, I did that for years. It was super unfortunate. And, you know, I wasn't willing to get help. Mm. And since the first time I had, you know, given up drugs, essentially, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know what sobriety was. I didn't know what recovery yeah. was. I didn't know what counseling was. Um, and so when I had met with counselors from the state and the government that said, hey, you've got to meet with these people, mm-hmm. it was just hell. You know, it was all mm-hmm. about when can you get back to work when, and I'm like, we're two weeks into this. Like mm. I haven't even attended every funeral. What do you, what do you mean back to work? Yeah. And so it was, uh, it was, it was super traumatic. There's no other way to, to, to put it that, you know, I just suffered for years and it wasn't until I'd ran into a counselor at a memorial at a bar where I was drinking that I had this moment of like clarity that I had when I was getting hired on the crew Mm -hmm. that I needed to be a dad again. Mm -hmm. She said, do you really want help? And I'm like, yeah, of course I want help. Like I need help. Like if my life is going to be like this, I'm not going to be here much longer. At some point in time, I'm going to pull the trigger literally. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm done. You know, I'm I'm 20, I was 22, 23, you know, going into 24 and I was just miserable. And, uh, you know, she yeah. said, all right, well, let's set you up with the counselor. So I got set up with the counselor and started working on a lot of my PTSD and got on some medication, but uh, alcohol would be brought up, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, right. I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the problem. <laughs> you know, it's this yeah. loss of grief. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until I got off the medication, I, I moved slow, right? And so it was yeah. nine months of counseling that uh, I dealt with, you know, PTSD and, and just everything that kind of came around it. And um, she goes, so what are you going to do about the drinking? It was like one of our wrap up sessions. And I said, mm. I'll take care of it. She just kind of looked at me and I'm like, it's like, have I lied to you yet? You know, have I told you something I wasn't mm. going to do and, and didn't do it? And she's like, yeah, you're right. Well, if you ever want to talk about it, let me know. And, uh, within the next few weeks, a pastor of mine would start a, a recovery meeting. Oh, wow. And I would attend that. And this, this pastor was meeting with me and I, I wasn't going to church, didn't want to be in a church, didn't want to be caught dead in the church. Mm. But he'd meet with me every week, every other week, and just check in and make sure I was still pretty much here. Yeah. And uh, he said, hey, why don't you come? You know, I know you got a, a, an issue with, you had an issue with drugs early on in your life. And I think it could be impactful for these guys to hear your story. And I remember the first night being there and hearing that, you know, everyone there was like actually truly sober, mm, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, it hit me in that moment. I'm like, if I ever want to do anything with my life, if like, if I want to tr- find true happiness, mm-hmm. I've got to find a wholehearted recovery program in, mm-hmm. in sobriety, not yeah. just uh, abstinent from drugs because alcohol is killing me. Yeah. And I just made a commitment from that day forward. I was done. Wow. I was done. Um, at the time I'd written the book and the movie was going to come out and I didn't want to make a fool out of myself and I didn't want to embarrass the families or my brothers, you know, stumbling down the red carpet drunk. Right. Uh, was not what I wanted. And so by the time the movie come out, I had six months sober. Um, wow. And, you know, it was just, through that fellowship again and through the rooms and the meetings that I found recovery and, you know, my relationship with my higher power who, you know, who is God and Christ, mm-hmm. you know, was so important and pivotal 
for me. And that's what made the, the ultimate difference. And so the movie came out and um, I was left with like, what do I do now? Yeah. I spent the last few years working on this movie and working on this, this film. And yeah, I've been praying a lot and it just put on my heart to open a treatment center. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a knuckle dragon hot shot. Like, what do you mean open a treatment center? Like, I, ain't go, I can't go back to school. That's for sure. I know nothing about business. And uh, every door and opportunity opened to when, you know, that prayer was answered with a, you know, hey, open a treatment center. Um, nine months later, I opened Hold Fast Recovery. We've wow. been open for um, almost two and a half years now. And so it's been, it's been amazing. It's been a wild journey. A lot of people... Um, early on said it couldn't be done. We opened the center and I had nine months. I didn't even have a year of sobriety and people are like, wow. you're stupid. You shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, you don't understand. Um, like if something's been put on my mind and it's been put on my heart, like nothing's getting in my way Yeah. of, of doing this. And if this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not yeah. their therapist. I'm not their counselor. I'm just the person who's going to bring together the people that I think know and understand this the world we live in of addiction and trauma and be yeah. there for them. And it's just been, it's been amazing. I've learned so much about myself and my own recovery. And, you know, I feel like uh, now at 29, I've, I've got a true understanding opposed to 10 years ago of, of what sobriety is Yeah, and uh, true sobriety. And so that's it's just been awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, tell me, tell me about the program there at hold fast. So we're a Christian-based program. You know, we don't beat people over the head with a Bible. You know, I found God through leadership, not through um, punishment, right? Right. And so, but we also have um, therapists that, you know, we work with a lot of evidence-based treatments, you know, CBT, DBT, mm -hmm. EMDR. We work with a lot of first responders and veterans, anywhere from like 25 to 35% of our population is uh, first responders, veterans, uh, okay. a lot of a lot of civilians too. So, mm -hmm. um, and that age, age ranges from like 20 to 45. Uh, so kind of a wide range that we work with, but it all, it all comes together and, and works together. And so we have a 90 day program. And so, um, a little long-term, you know, compared to others, some are longer, uh, yeah. with the option to stay for six months. And, you know, we work with, um, Males only right now. We're looking to open a female program this fall, hopefully, which is like literally right around the corner. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's just, we've been blessed to, to give back and, you know, we want to continue to do so and to really, you know, just share that message, right? It's so important yeah. of, of hope and recovery. And that's, that's been big in our hearts. And so we've just been continuing to expand and grow as needed and, you know, feel yeah. the need that, that people are, are looking for. And so, you know, a lot of times we find people, unfortunately, that have been through different programs and, you know, really didn't find that connection with their higher power. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of where we work best is really, you know, just walking with them and saying, Hey, we're not, we don't have to be baptized or, you know, mm -hmm. do communion to graduate here. We just want to talk with you right? and, you know, have that conversation and, and it, answer any questions we can yeah and hopefully we can plant seeds but ultimately the goal you know here is to you know help you get sober through yeah. what we know works and yeah you know, there's a lot of different ways for people to find recovery and so 
Mm -hmm. The most important thing is making sure that we're the right fit off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Getting them to a good place. So, well, and it's so important, you know, uh, that, that you guys are there for people like first responders and, um, the, um, the people that serve us because there is so much trauma in those professions and, you know, veterans, people coming back, um, from serving and they don't know what to do with what they experienced. You know, the world kept moving while they were gone and all, you know, all those things. And, um, they're alone. They feel isolated, all those things that trigger use and abuse and, um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to know that there's a place where, um, you know, A, it's a 90-day program. It's not a short stay, which is great because uh, yeah. it's much more likely to succeed for the long term, the longer you stay mm-hmm. for a bit, and that you're dealing with trauma while people are there. Uh, yeah. you're, you're plugging into their spiritual um, uh, deficit that they're experiencing probably. And um, I think, how can people access information, Brendan, to Hold Fast Recovery? So they can find us www.holdfastrecovery.com. Uh, we're on social media. A lot of times people reach out to me personally on social media. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really good at responding. Our phone number, 1-800-351-6858. It's always on. Okay. You know, and for those who are struggling and they the, – they might have said, well, Prescott's too far, or I don't want to go to a Christian program or, you mm-hmm. know, um, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for help and if you can't find it, give us a call. And I'll, I'll sit with you on the phone and, you know, I'll, I'll sit there on Google and we'll find somewhere. We'll, we'll okay. help you try and find somewhere. And I think, you know, um, there's many places like that, you know, Yeah. but it, it's important to, to just say it because maybe we're not the right treatment center, but maybe we're the right person to help you find the courage to get to a place. Right. And that's, you know, that's half of what I do. That's half my job is, you know, um, working with people that are struggling and, you know, we're, we're not it for them. And that's okay. That's fine. I, yeah. It's not, it's not about us. It's about them. Right. Getting them help, you know, wherever it is, whether it's Arkansas, New York, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I just want to see people find sobriety and have the opportunity that I had. At, uh, at life. Um, well, that speaks beautiful thing. volumes and very highly of your, of your motivation, because, you know, many times it's, as you know, being in this uh, business, so to speak, um, you know, it's a heads in beds kind of mindset, you know, and you, you and I could probably do a whole other episode just on the, uh, the flip side of treatment. But, um, but I'm glad to hear that you're, you're, main objective is if we're not the fit for you, let's just find you help. And that is, you know, the most important thing. I want to ask you yeah. one, one more thing before I let you go for today. And thank you again so much for being here and, and sharing this with you. We will do our, our level best to archive this successfully. Oh, <laughs> but, no, that's awesome. But um, how did having a movie made about such a, a terrible experience impact you um i i can't i i mean i can only imagine everything from i don't even want to see it i lived it to um i don't like the way this was portrayed or something was glorified that wasn't really uh you know i had no idea but it just how how did it impact you you know it was a full range of emotions but i was able to you know work with um the director and actors and 
other crew members that have been on the crew previously before the tragedy we're able to work with them as well and i think you know the the end the end product of the film was an honoring fitting film that that depicted um kind of the the lifestyle of who the crew was and who those men were and what it was like to be a hot shot and so at the at the end of the day i can't get in the way of um my personal beliefs of wanting to honor them because that's what that film's done mm-hmm. and it's put wildland firefighters on a completely different map um mm-hmm. of, of understanding for people and so it was such a pivotal film not only for my brothers and their story just to be remembered forever i still get messages you know hey it showed up on fox or um you know sometimes they you know uh, don't let films out for years later in other countries or something like that yeah yeah i can i can tell when the film's playing in brazil because i'll get hundreds of messages from brazil or canada wow or russia i can tell because a the language barrier um b but just that outpour of love and support i think it just it's a constant reminder to me that that film has done its job and that was to to honor them and their sacrifice and to ensure that they would be remembered and not forgotten. And so that's really important, yeah. uh, you know, but it was, yeah, it was a lot of emotions. You know, I remember watching the film for the first time and just crying for, you know, an hour after oh, yeah. and sitting in Sony in their theater and just, just bawling my eyes out. But I had such a close relationship with one of the producers that he, you know, he came in and, and just sat there and just helped me. Mm. you know as I just cried and we had created yeah. a bond and it was like um he's like a father figure you mm. know to me uh, yeah and um that was that was huge you know that was a really pivotal moment of like this isn't Hollywood mm-hmm. this isn't business like this is these are people that are really trying to to make this story right mm-hmm. and to tell it right and they accomplished that and, you know yeah. there's always a few things right that I'm like sure I didn't get bit by a rattlesnake. Like, what? Do we really have to put that in there? But it it, it shows the dangers of the job because you know yeah. there's been plenty of people who have been, and it just fit into the the story. And there's certain things they wanted to be able to portray and tell, and to capture. And you know that was really important. So yeah, I was I was overall happy with it. You know, honored. I haven't watched it in years. I, pr- I probably won't watch it um, mm-hmm. for a few more years. And, you know, uh, and it's not, it's just, like you said, I lived it. There was a point in time when I, when I did watch it, you know, family and friends were like, Hey, would you come watch it with us? And me Mm -hmm. personally, I'm a a yes guy. So I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, man, it was cool to watch it with my recovery meeting. Like we all went. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, a lot of guys didn't know who I was because I really, I didn't, I don't talk about it. I don't. Right. projected on my like hey don't you know who i am you know i remember this kid from new york he had been going to this meeting for like nine months in no clue we show up this movie theater his dad was a new york fireman and um he just came out and just gave me a big hug he's like dude i didn't even know and now he's got multiple years clean and we're just best of buds and his dad's moving from new york to out here and so just wow small yeah small things in the world that just make you make you smile Wow. Well, man, this has been so great to have you with us. Um, Brendan McDonough, the book is Granite Mountain. The movie is Only the Brave. And um, I guess most importantly, we want them to know Hold Fast Recovery. And um, 
please reach out to Brendan um, if you are in this, uh, especially if you're in this demographic of people that they specialize in helping. And, um, and Brendan, you know, we, uh, we always say on the Positive Sobriety podcast, this is, we want to highlight people who have taken something that's, you know, kind of the shittiest of circumstances and are living out sobriety in the most positive ways in their story. And man, I can't think of another better example of that than what you're doing. So, you know, thank you, David. God's best to you and your work there. And, uh, just the amazing stories that you're going to have coming out of the place. I'm, I'm excited to follow up and see what, uh, what happens from here. So Definitely. Thank you. All right. Well, much appreciation, man. And we will talk to you soon. It's been awesome having you. Thank you. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And Nate, that interview for me was, um, that was moving. Um, Mm. And yeah. challenging, you know, one of the things that, um, Brendan just, uh, is so diligent about, and I know he alluded to this in the interview, but, uh, but also when we were kind of off mic, just talking, uh, before we started, he, you know, he said, I believe these 19 guys lives deserves something, uh, of substance and meaning to come from it. And, and so, you know, we always talk about in sobriety, having the bigger why, you know, our, our bigger why and our bigger, you know, when, when things are, uh, you know, uh, hitting the fan and, and why are we continuing to do what we do and, and keep in the game and all that. And he said, you know, my, my colleagues, my buddies, my family, you know, cause they were family to him, um, deserve, um, something of meaning to come from all this. And, um, and the fact that, you know, they've devoted much of the work they do there at, um, at hold fast recovery, um, to first responders and, uh, military people and people that are suffering from PTSD from the very thing that, that Brendan experienced in this, in this horrible tragedy. Um, you know, it's, it's a way to, to give back to people who will otherwise, um, you know, have to sit in a pretty dark, silent place. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you for uh, following through on that conversation. And I'm so grateful to Brendan for change, for, for sharing his story and for sharing his life and for pursuing such a worthwhile mission. Yeah. And, you know, um, to be this guy who um, has had this, you know, this book and this movie with well-known actors, you know, portraying things about himself and his life and all this stuff, he is, um, you know, he 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 realizes that that this is just um, this is not about him, you know, and 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 he is so. Uh, determined to play down himself in this in this story and just say you know i don't i don't know why i got picked to go up in the watchtower instead of those guys you know yeah, yeah. um but but since i'm here i got to do something with that and man you know i think i think that challenges all of us to look at that you know, to, to keep that bigger why of our, of our sobriety and our recovery in front of us, whatever that is. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and to know it 
and to be able to pull it up <laughs> when we need yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's not just about me. Right. All right. Well, um, before we go, uh, let's remind our listeners that we love to hear from. We've gotten some great letters lately. Uh, love to hear from you. Send us a note with a suggestion uh, or a, a critique or a word of encouragement or uh, anything you want to positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com means the world to us. Yeah. And uh, remind us uh, about our sponsor, will you? Yeah, absolutely. BetterHelp. Um, BetterHelp.com. Try BetterHelp. Um, we, uh, are really fortunate and, and thrilled to, uh, share with, uh, betterhelp.com, uh, with respect to our sponsorship and helping people find, uh, help who may not be, uh, able or, uh, excited about going to traditional therapy in a live one-on-one setting. And man, again, you know, right now, um, how, fitting it is to have an alternative to therapy that may, um, allow you to stay safe at home and, um, and maybe not yeah. get out, especially if you have compromised health and, and things like that, which certainly can contribute to depression. And, and so they are, they are there for us to, to handle anything from, uh, you know, our, our stuck places and stories to, uh, possible depression and helping us assess that to uh, trauma and anxiety work, and you can have the same therapist every time, or if you don't have a good fit with your first one, there's no hard feelings, you can change to another one. About a half a million people are taking advantage of betterhelp.com right now. And if you will go to trybetterhelp.com backslash positive sobriety, it helps us track what things we offer uh, that are beneficial to everyone. And we, you will also receive 10% off of your initial signup. So uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and, uh, and go and, and treat yourself to some good, uh, healthy living uh, that you can ex- access from, from your own home. Awesome. Awesome. Well, David, uh, as always, it's been wonderful connecting with you this week. I look forward to next week. You've got some great guests lined up for us in the future. We do. Absolutely do. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, until next time then, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee, Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, Wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford. 